In this lecture, organised by the University's School for Health, Professor Stephen Blair from the University of South Carolina talks about the problem of obesity in America and highlights some of the potential solutions that are being developed. It's a fantastic pleasure for me to introduce uh, Steve Blair, who's sat here to give this lecture on uh, physical activity and obesity and health. Um, I know Steve doesn't like long lists of achievements, but I can assure you that his long list of achievements is longer than, than anybody who's living, I think, in this field. He is a, the, pre, the, the preeminent authority in the field of physical activity and health. If you type Blair S., into Google or the Web of Science or Medline PubMed, you will come out with dozens, hundreds of landmark publications by, uh, by Professor Blair. So um, he has many, many achievements, as I say. The one he tells me he's most proud of uh, is that he's an honorary doctor of science at the University of Bristol, which is just down the road. Uh, because this is the University of Bath, we won't dwell on that too much here, Steve, but, but you, Bristol don't give away these things to anybody, uh, and that, that was a major achievement. Uh, as I say, he's very proud of that. So um, without further ado, uh, I'd like to thank Steve for breaking his journey from Australia to America to call in to Bath to give this lecture, uh, Professor Steve Blair, South Carolina University. Well, thank you very much, uh, Chris. I assure you it's uh, a pleasure to be here. And I'm, I'm wondering just how many of you people took a wrong turning and just kind of wound up here by accident? As, you know, again, a cold uh, Monday evening. I can't believe that uh, uh, many people would want to come out and hear me babble on for the next three hours. But uh, you're here, and uh, so we'll get started with it. Uh, here are um, uh, some of the points uh, that I intend to cover uh, in some fashion this evening, and I should mention also uh, bringing apologies from my colleague, Professor Russ Pate. I know there were some announcements, I think, right, Chris, that uh, went out that uh, both Russ and I would be uh, uh, giving talks here tonight. Uh, Russ is uh, quite an active researcher, one of the, the, the leading researchers in the world in the physical activity interventions for children and youth. Uh, he's keeping that research program going, but he's also now recently moved up to a very high administrative post at our university, and some things came up in the last couple of weeks that uh, he just uh, felt he couldn't get away uh, for a few days. So I bring uh, apologies from him, and Chris did ask me to uh, uh, try to bring children and youth into this, uh, this lecture a little bit. So as you see there in the second bullet, I, I will try to do that, uh, but this is not an area in which I've done a lot of research. But fortunately, there are a number of people in the room, such as Chris and uh, Callum Maddox and Ken Fox and uh, others, uh, who do know about such things. So any questions at the end that you choose to ask me about uh, children and youth, I will refer on to one of those uh, uh, in individuals. So I'll talk first about children and youth, and I will rant and rave a little bit this evening about the obesity mafia or the obesity cartel, and I've got even some very recent quotes from a newspaper here yesterday uh, that uh, will maybe help me make uh, a couple of points. Uh, we'll talk a bit about what's causing this obesity epidemic. Can you be fit and fat? And then I just, I can't go anywhere and not talk about exercise or physical activity and its importance in the prevention and management of uh, uh, numerous chronic diseases. So let us begin uh, by addressing the question of inactivity and obesity in children and youth. Uh, here's um, a slide showing the increases in excess body weight uh, in, in a number of countries. What are these? are all in, in uh, Europe, I think. Uh, over the last uh, now nearly half a century, and it's clear that in children and youth, more and more of them are by this definition of excess body weight. And we're seeing the prevalence uh, go up. And uh, not only in uh, uh, children and, uh, and youth, but actually in infants. In, in tiny babies, uh, 6 to 23 months, look how over the last uh, 
20 or 30 years, the obesity rate has increased. Now, there's a whole host of issues about how do you define obesity in children, let alone in uh, babies, but uh, we'll not go into that uh, this evening. Uh, you look at slightly younger kids, you know, it's the same pattern. Uh, and then uh, the, kind of the, the 6 to 11-year-olds and uh, even the older children. I mean, this is a, a phenomenon observed widely around the world. Uh, and from babies to children to youth and adults, I didn't put in any slide about uh, adults. All you have to do is, you know, if you've traveled to the United States, uh, say a couple of times in the last 20 years, it's very clear that there's an obesity epidemic there. And uh, we are, uh, well, not, we're not quite number one. We're way ahead of you folks. You need to try to catch up and uh, have the obesity rate uh, move up a bit. But <clears throat> what most people don't think about very deeply is, well, why are we having this epidemic? Why have we seen it in so many countries, not only the industrialized nations of the world, but even the emerging economies of the developing countries of the world? What's driving this? That, again, at all ages, all around the world, obesity rates are going up. There are a lot of people who think they know the answer to that. I freely admit I don't know. I don't think we have the data. I mean, I have my opinion, and that will come through, but we don't really have adequate data to know what is causing the obesity epidemic. It is clear that it's a matter of energy balance, energy in and energy out, and it's the calories that determine whether or not you're in positive energy balance or not. And if you're in positive energy balance for too many days or you have too long a time, you will gain weight. And if you keep that up, you will ultimately become overweight or obese. I mean, that is something we know for certain. The laws of thermodynamics uh, uh, are not altered when it comes to considering issues of human obesity. But we don't know what's tipping or what has tipped the energy balance. And there are a number of things that are listed here on the energy inside. You see this huge sandwich, and we, we know that portion sizes have increased, at least in the, uh, the U.S., I suspect, here as well. And then there are people who carry on at great length about fat in the diet, about the energy-dense diet, you know, the uh, prepared processed foods. We don't get enough fiber. And then, of course, soft drinks, sugary soft drinks, come in for enormous uh, criticism as a cause of the obesity epidemic. I'm here to tell you there's very little evidence to support any of those. I mean, portion size has increased, but that doesn't matter unless total energy intake increases. And I'm not intimately familiar with the data here in uh, the UK or, or other countries for that matter, but in the US, we have no compelling evidence that average daily caloric intake has increased over the last 25 years or the period of the obesity epidemic. We have no compelling data to support that point. Well, if the obesity epidemic is due to sugary soft drinks and portion size and on and on and on and on, then why can't we detect an increase in, in average daily energy intake in adults? And we have spent tens of millions of dollars on big surveys, big population surveys in the U.S. looking for this, and we have no compelling data. Uh, now, of course, I tend to look at the energy expenditure side of the equation as uh, where I think uh, more of the problem is, but we have no data on total energy expenditure in, in the U.S., and I don't think in any large representative population surveys. I mean, is it the television? Is it the video games, the PC? Uh, that's, uh, no heavy labor and so forth. The truth is we do not know the cause of the obesity epidemic. What is clear to me is that many people do not understand that we don't know and don't have the data, and that energy balance itself is poorly understood. Again, it's very simple. Calories in, calories out. You take in more than you burn, positive caloric balance. That energy, the laws of thermodynamics, has to be dealt with, and it's dealt with in the human body by making fat cells or loading up fat cells. So here's an example to support my argument <clears throat> excuse me, that uh, energy balance is poorly understood. This is from an editorial a few years ago in Science. 
one of the world's most prestigious scientific publications. Donald Kennedy is the editor of science. I think Albelson maybe was a formal ed former editor, but these guys are luminaries of American science, of world science. They're members of our National Academy. Uh, they're luminaries. And when I say they don't understand energy balance, and some of you third-year students already see why their statement, why their quote here is completely idiotic. Where's my man who answers my questions? He's up there. <laughs> no, I won't put you on the spot. But uh, think about this. What is wrong with this statement? And it's a quote from the editorial. Americans continue to consume an average of 3,800 calories per person per day, or about twice the requirement. Does anyone want to shout out what's wrong with its statement? Are you going to sit there like a bunch of lumps and let me have to tell you what's wrong with the statement? Okay, 3,800 calories per person per day. First of all, I don't think that number is right. It does exist in the literature, and some people believe it. I'm, I'm confident that it's not correct. But let's just say for the moment that the average daily caloric intake of Americans is 3,800, adult Americans, 3,800 calories. And then if that's twice the daily requirement, if my math is correct, then that means each American is getting, adult American, 1,900 extra calories per day. Some of you begin to see where I'm going with this. It takes about 7,700 calories to lay down one kilogram of human body fat. 1,900 a day. So one kilogram every four days. Or 90 kilograms a year. This is absurd, and you can all see this. And yet, this statement is in an editorial in the journal Science. I rest my case. People, even scientific luminaries, do not understand energy balance. So then what is the cause of the obesity epidemic? Is it people are eating too much? I've already given you my take on that. I'll say more about why I think it's dec decreases in energy expenditure. And some people talk about high fructose corn syrup, various uh, micro or, or macronutrients. No data really convincing evidence, in my opinion, to support that. And then, of course, there are those, the flip-floppers, who say, well, it's a combination of increases in intake and decreases in expenditure. And so then my next question, well, if you believe that, is the problem kind of 50-50? 50% on the diet side, 50% on the expenditure side? Is it 30-70, as some of the nutrition fanatics would have you believe? Or is it 70-30, as some of the energy expenditure fanatics might have you? Well, again, the truth is we don't know. The causes are extremely complex, as illustrated here in this diagram from, uh, is actually a World Health Organization committee, um, <clears throat> led by Professor Kumanyika. So if we look here at, you know, there are all kinds of things in the work-school-home environment that could be related. There are community and loca locality issues. There are national and regional issues. All of these things, and even international, uh, global markets, the global food markets. Actually, I applaud the global food distribution system because I am addicted to blueberries. And I can have blueberries every day on my cereal because of this uh, system. And then, of course, there are all kinds of interconnections. Just look at this thing go. They're all tied together, very complex. And Claude Bouchard has a diagram even more complex than this that I took out of this talk. So it's very complex, and I know that, but I suspect that more of the problem lies in the constellation of factors that relate to declines in energy expenditure. Because again, we've spent in the U.S. tens of millions of dollars measuring energy intake, and we have no compelling evidence that it's gone up over the period of the obesity epidemic. So then there's really kind of only one other explanation, and that must be that energy expenditure has been going down. But this, uh, this whole area, and I'm going to rant and rave a good bit about this this evening, is just full of misconception and uh, opinions that I think are absolutely loony. And I do have to say there are a number of people who think I'm loony on this topic. 
I'll never forget, I'm going to talk a little later about fitness and fatness. I presented uh, data on this topic. I think we kind of invented this controversy about 12 years ago, presented some data on this topic. I'll never forget the distinguished British scientist in commenting on what I presented. What a lot of rubbish. Well, what's rubbish? I'm I'm not sure. But anyway, I think it wasn't a a compliment. So let, let me show you some data now several years ago that were presented at the experimental biology meeting where this group was trying to find, well, why are American kids getting, uh, why are the obesity rates going up? So they looked at activity measures and they looked at diet measures and the conclusion they uh, came to was that the increases was due uh, more to decreased physical activity and I prefer not to talk about physical activity. I've deliberately been using the term energy expenditure because I don't think it's just what we think of as physical activity and I'll elaborate on this um, a a little bit later. Little evidence of increasing caloric intake. So an enterprising uh, reporter from the Associated Press called uh, a person who was a a high-profile individual in the American Academy of Pediatrics to ask him what he thought about this research. Well, I take exception to that. They only showed a 1% increase in calories over this period. I think it is much higher than that. Well, doctor, you are entitled to your opinion. But the data say there was little increase in caloric intake. And then Dr. So-and-so, who's a nutrition expert, we're pretty sure they're eating too much no matter what the data say. Well, if I'm ever on a grant review committee reviewing uh, a a proposal from Dr. XXX, I'm going to say, don't fund her, because she doesn't, it doesn't matter what data say to her. Pretty sure they're eating too much. And then I love this from the American Dietetic Association spokesperson. Accepting the conclusion that food is, well, you can all read, take the pressure off the food companies to cut the calories they feed the nation. Now, it's actually only about three days a week, actually, when a representative of the food industry shows up at my house and crams food down my throat. So I don't know whether this cut the calories they feed the nation. Well, an example of what I think is bias and unscientific perspectives on this. And here's a statement. How many of you have seen this statement or heard this statement on the news? Again, I was in Australia a couple of weeks ago. There was a report on the BBC Worldwide News, a report out of London, and the reporter made this statement. First generation, the current kids who will have shorter life expectancy than their parents. And this lie has been repeated now over the last two or three years. Again and again, I know you're all shy, reserved Brits, and you didn't put only one guy put up his hand. I know the rest of you are lying. Most of you have heard this statement, and there's essentially no evidence to support it. It could happen, but I will point out that over the 25 years of the worldwide obesity epidemic, over that same period of time, at least in the United States, and our epidemic has been, of obesity has been going up, over that same period of time, longevity has continued to increase. And this is true in most countries in the world. Longevity is increasing. So maybe there's going to be an abrupt downturn, and maybe it's going to nail the current children and youth. I don't, we'll have to wait and see. <clears throat> Now, the modern environment does promote. I mean, the environment is a key factor in the obesity epidemic, and I saw you in Dr. showed you in Dr. Kumanyika's slides. It's, you know, many different environments that uh, promote uh, uh, insult, let's say, to both sides of the energy balance equation. For example, diabetic funnel cake at the Texas State Fair. Yeah, you can get that. Do you people have Oreos here? You don't know what Oreos are? They're cooked chocolate cookies with a, a flavor filling. Great, great cookie. But uh, again, Texas State Fair is, is famous for this. You know, the deep fry anything. A couple of years ago, the, 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 the great new discovery was deep fried peanut butter, jelly, and banana sandwiches. Doesn't that appeal to you? And so deep fried Oreos, and actually... This is really not very good, no matter the description here. It looks wonderful. But if you put, it, put, put some ice cream on it and then some hot fudge sauce 
and some marshmallows and nuts and a cherry, then it's a very good day. So the fried Oreo is all right. And then, of course, we can drive up for everything in the United States. When I first went to Texas years ago, you could even drive up for beer. That was a wonderful thing. But uh, the Texas legislature then went crazy and and took that out. But, uh, well, let's uh, come back to data. And now let me uh, uh, give uh, credit to uh, my colleagues, uh, Russ Pate and Bill Haskell, who presented, I am showing a few of the slides they presented at a childhood obesity conference held just a few months ago uh, in Toronto, where Professor Riddick was on the uh, expert uh, panel, in fact, for that meeting. Uh, uh, Russ uh, looked back over the last 10 years at uh, uh, surveillance data from population-based studies and looked at, now if if you're not in the exercise science, this MVPA just stands for moderate to vigorous physical activity. So it's physical activity above a light level and typically we would characterize this as a brisk walk or more activity running or strenuous sports. I'm not going to really uh, talk much uh, this evening about sedentary behavior. But here are some data, recent data from uh, uh, a surveillance uh, mechanism in the United States. This is done in all 50 states with random digit telephone dialing, so we think it's a representative uh, sample showing data here on 9th and 12th grade um, uh, kids. This is a self-report where the interviewers ask them about uh, uh, their physical activity habits. And the current recommendations, at least in the U.S., and same here, Ken, uh, 60 minutes, moderate to vigorous activity a day for uh, children and youth. Um, So this is the recommendation for activity. And uh, the data now on the next slide is, well, what percent of the kids are meeting these recommendations? Well, in uh, this uh, system, about 40% of the boys in the ninth through 12th grades and uh, lower rates in the girls, 20 declining down to, uh, uh, what is that, 25% or a little below for the girls. Meeting the recommendation, can you remember this? 40%, let's say 25%, who are getting 60 minutes a day of moderate to vigorous physical activity. Then let us come to just down the road, if, if I am permitted to mention uh, uh, Bristol as a part of this, but of course, Professor Riddick is the principal investigator on, on this um, uh, project, and so we can say this is a Bristol Bath uh, uh, initiative. Uh, objectively measured physical activity from the uh, Avon Longitudinal Study of Parents and Children. Uh, The largest, I think, sample, 5,500 kids, 12 years of age, with an objective measure of physical activity from a device called an accelerometer. So it's uh, this this kind of device that you you wear on, on your hip, and it measures your acceleration or your movement. So it's an objective measure of physical activity. And in the, the ALSPAC project, uh, Professor Ness here is the lead uh, author, uh, This uh, just this year, we published the minutes of moderate to vigorous activity for these children in Bristol, in the Bristol area. Well, now, then you say, well, the, the, the kids in the U.S. on the YRBS must have been lying with that 40 or 30 or 40% of them uh, getting 60 minutes a day because in Allspec, we find that the average, when measured objectively, is only 20 minutes a day. So you say, well, this, uh, you know, kids are a bunch of slobs and they sit around and they're not physically active. Well, then there's also objective data from our Haines survey, and again, uh, uh, pr- pretty current uh, uh, data, again, with an objective measure from an accelerometer, and again, looking at minutes of moderate to vigorous. Well, look at this. Most boys, uh, more than 90% in the 6 to 11-year age range, are meeting the, the recommendation. And in fact, 75% of the girls. Now, it does decline with age, and girls are always lower than uh, boys. But even if we come out here to those in the late teenage years, it's uh, 30% or 20% uh, are getting, uh, uh, are meeting the 60 minutes a day of MVPA. So are American kids more active than the uh, kids in Bristol? Uh, These data, while not presented in exactly the same way, I think would suggest that. 
Then another project that uh, where Professor Riddick has been one of the leaders is the European Youth uh, Heart Study. And a few years ago, they published data again from the actigraph accelerometer in 9- and 15-year-old kids from these four countries. And look at this. Minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity. 180. This is per day for the 9-year-olds. For the 15-year-olds, it's 100 for the boys, and what is that, 70, 75 for the girls. That's the average. So a lot of activity in the European Youth Heart Study. So uh, what, what is the truth? Well, we have a range, as in any issue in science, we have a range of data on the average number of moderate to vigorous physical activity um, uh, minutes per day for boys and girls uh, from Ian Haynes by self-report and all of these by objective accelerometry. So a huge difference. And this, uh, again, if you have questions about this, ask Professor Riddick uh, uh, later why and what he thinks is, is the, uh, the cause of this huge difference. But note that, again, the Alspac girls the least active by these measures, and it's about uh, 15 minutes a day of moderate to vigorous physical activity. I'm going to come back to that a little later. Now, here is a quote from the Sunday Telegraph of yesterday. Most children do uh, do less than 90 minutes of exercise a week. Teenagers are even lazier in the press and occasionally lecturers like to use these inflammatory terms. And you can see, you know, the, the only four out of ten, and so on. You can all read. And let's bash the teenage girls. They're the most sedentary. And now look at this. Half of all children could be obese by 2050. I agree with that statement. Half could be. 60% could be. 30% could be. I mean, you have to be pretty adventuresome to predict something like this for more than 40 years in the future. I don't know what it's going to be. Maybe it'll get worse. Maybe it'll get better. If ranting and raving about the dangers of obesity and sugary soft drinks is a solution to the problem, then this is going to get better. And we're not going to have nearly this many obese kids because there's plenty of ranting and raving uh, on the diet side to go around. Uh, Well, another thing that has uh, changed Uh, is uh, how kids get to school. And here's some recent data from Melbourne. Uh, Although it hasn't changed much in the last 16 years, a third or more of the kids do not, you know, they never walk to or from school. Now, you want me to tell you about my going to school, growing up on a farm in north-central Kansas, walking, riding my horse a mile and a half through the blizzard, Uphill both ways, you know that story. Uh, there are more kids in Melbourne now who walk to school one to five times a week, but that's come at the expense of fewer doing it much more regularly. And there's not much cycling going on in Melbourne for kids getting to school. Some other interesting data that Bill Haskell presented in at Toronto shows uh, these are from kind of time diary uh, type studies over this uh, period from 81 to 97. Um, And I don't remember the details of the sample and how they put all this together uh, and so on. But uh, there's some striking numbers here that over this period, this is minutes per week, these are three to five-year-old kids. They're spending 400 more minutes per week in school, daycare, studying, and reading. Probably not too many of these kids are studying, but uh, anyway, that's the category. There are actually more of them playing sports outdoors, uh, and a little few more shopping, a little less TV watching, and less passive leisure. But look at this. These little kids, about the age of my little grandson, 500 fewer minutes per week playing. What in the world are we doing to these kids? Here for the 9- and 12-year-old kids, same kind of pattern, a lot more time studying school and so forth, Uh, less television in this age group, and so on. And this is the, the decline in discretionary time 
for kids in these different age groups over this period. Isn't this shocking? I mean, what, what is that we've taken discretionary time from kids, even as young as three to five years of age, and programmed them into a variety of activities? What does all this mean? What does it have to do with the obesity epidemic? I don't know, but I leave it for you to think about. Now, I want to switch to uh, adults and uh, talk about mainly about some research we've done and are doing uh, within the Aerobic Center Longitudinal Study. Uh, this is a cohort study of a very large group of patients examined at the Cooper Clinic in Dallas uh, over the period uh, 1970, and I've got data up through 2005. These are very extensive medical examinations. Each exam takes several hours a day. Each doctor in the Cooper Clinic sees three or four patients a day to give you the notion of how intensive this exam is. And, of course, this is why I went to Dallas, uh, started working on this project in 1980. It's, uh, it's, it's a wonderful database. And including the CRF stands for cardiorespiratory fitness. All of these individuals had a maximal exercise test on a treadmill as a part of this examination. So we have an objective laboratory measure of their fitness, and then we follow them for mortality and morbidity and so forth. Let me show you some uh, uh, data that are currently in press. I think it's due out uh, this month or next month. Uh, in this particular analysis, uh, men and women <clears throat> in the prime of life, some of you can't understand that, uh, 60 years of age and over 4,000 of them followed up over a long period of time, up to 30 years, during which time nearly 1,000 of them died. <clears throat> and here are the death rates, or the, the risk of dying, I should say, from all, any cause, from cardiovascular disease and from cancer, across low, moderate, and high categories of cardiorespiratory fitness. So again, maximal exercise test on a treadmill. We sort them into these three categories. Low fit is the least fit 20%. So these are the people, they all have sedentary jobs. These are all business executives and, and, and such. So they all have sedentary jobs. Uh, the low fit are those who have no regular exercise and don't do any work around the house and yard. They spend nearly all their time sitting like you people are doing now. You know, you could be standing up and getting a little bit of move. You could even dance. It wouldn't bother me. Uh, but uh, So these are the low fit, the real couch potatoes. Then the moderately fit ones have, for all-cause mortality, about a 35% lower risk of dying during this follow-up, and the high fit have about a 40% lower risk of dying. Same pattern of results for cardiovascular disease. Not quite as pronounced for cancer, but the pattern is still there. And we can never, in all the dozens of papers we've published from this cohort, we can never make these associations, this inverse pattern across fitness categories, go away no matter how much we statistically adjust the data. Now, if you aren't impressed, especially if you're in this age group, if you aren't impressed with these data, there's something wrong with you. Now, look at this. All-cause mortality, low, moderate, and high fitness, in those 60 to 69, 70 to 79, and 80 and older. Same pattern of results in all three of these age groups. But look at this. The high-fit individuals, 80 and older, on up to 100 years of age in this cohort, have a death rate that's, what is that, about 12 or 13 as compared with 27, 28 in the low-fit individuals 20, 25 or more years younger. This is how powerful fitness is as a determinant of morbidity and mortality. In, in the, this set of data, it's, it's the strongest predictor of mortality, and I'll come back to this a little bit later, of, of all the things uh, that, that, that we look at. Now, if you're still with me and you've been listening, the thought that should be going through your mind is, gosh, what do you have to do to be at least moderately fit? Well, not much, actually. Here from several thousand men and women who were moderately fit and proved it on the treadmill, uh, when we looked at the medical history and asked them about their physical activity habits, those who said, I walk for my activity, 130 to 150 minutes a week of walking produces moderate fitness that has 
this kind of benefit. If jogging is your sport or your activity, it only takes 90 minutes. It's the same dose of energy expenditure. It just takes less time because you're working at a higher intensity. And if you like to go to aerobics class, it's intermediate in intensity, so it's an intermediate number of minutes. But this is what it takes to achieve and maintain moderate fitness as I have been defining it here this evening. Now, unfortunately, we've engineered physical activity out of daily life to a great extent. Doesn't he look comfortable? And I know Chris and uh, Ken are always amazed, but a few years ago, for at least a one-year period, um, I was a very good boy. And Santa Claus brought me my own personal CD player. So the problem is not uh, the lazy fat man or the recliner. The problem is this. This is a personal CD player which has no external speakers, to which you must be attached to use it. And it has a remote control. (laughs) It's like having a remote control for your wristwatch. What in God's name is the need? But it's just an example of how we engineer, have engineered energy expenditure out of daily life. For example... Every day, each of us does dozens, hundreds of of, uh, different uh, tasks or chores. And oftentimes, there's a pretty sedentary way to accomplish that, like go to a lecture and sit on your fanny. Or you could actually be standing and be burning 30 or 40% more calories by standing. And, of course, using the channel changer. Uh, See, do do, do people in in, uh, Britain have cell phones? I knew that. It was a joke. Uh, So you could lie down to take your phone calls. You could stand and burn five times as many calories. Or you actually could walk even slowly and burn a whole lot more. Well, on and on. I haven't had a lot of success in in getting the wealthy people to give up their maids uh, and and doing it themselves. But, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic. I keep trying. Now, some of you people understand this. And I look out, the majority of people are, I think, students. And I'm sure you are amazed to learn that you can make a pizza. It's not just something that has to be delivered. You can actually make it, and you burn nearly twice as many calories as you wait for the 30 million. This is probably an underestimate. And you can buy vegetables and actually wash them and chop them up. I mean, someone has actually done some calculations on the energy cost of preparing dinner if you do it by chopping and so on, or if you pop something in the microwave. I mean, it's, again, an example of how we've engineered energy expenditure out of daily life. Now, I know that no one in this room would have ever emailed a colleague in the office next door or in your spouse or partner across the sitting room. No one's ever done that, right? Right. Uh, You can uh, take the elevator, escalator. You can actually walk up the stairs. So, oh, oh, here's a good one. Has anyone here ever bought anything over the Internet? Come on, put your hand up. Okay, I knew there was someone. Now, going to the shopping mall is not your heavy-duty aerobic workout. But look at, you spend a whole lot more calories. We've engineered energy expenditure Largely out of daily life. <clears throat> I showed you, I just showed you 20 examples. If you always chose the sedentary way over the, the course of one month, it would have cost you 1,700 calories to do those tasks. If you always chose the active way, over 10,000 calories. For this difference, which is the energy equivalent of a little more than a kilogram of fat a month, this I think, is the major cause of the obesity epidemic. I have no data, but then neither do people on the other side, so we're all entitled to our opinion. Just another example. I mean, you get this uh, remote remote, which you carry around in a little holster, and I'm working on a project, actually, to make this part of your cell phone which I know you all have with you at all times. So you whip out your cell phone, and you aim it at the remote, and you make 
your cell phone, the remote remote, and you use that to change the channel. So you, know, you don't even have to lean forward to pick up the remote or search around for it under the cushions of the couch or your chair. And I can tell you, uh, this has just markedly improved the quality of my TV watching to have this remote remote. And you could get one too because I'm going to work with Professor Riddick and we're going to open a UK branch to sell this device. So get in line after the lecture and um, get your order in. Okay, now we come to I really want to rant and rave for the next uh, hour and a half or so, uh, talking about fitness, obesity, etc. Is it possible to be fat and fit? Well, you all know Professor Riddick, and he's a trim, muscular, handsome, uh, uh, tall uh, uh, fellow. But the reason he looks that way is this enormous, very strong corset that he wears, that just squeeze. I mean, he's really my height, actually, but he wears this enormous corset, and it squeezes together, and he he looks tall. But I I have a picture of him in his ballet class, and uh, he is, look at that, on point. Well, is it possible to be fat and fit? You know, I could flip this around and say, is it possible to be normal weight and unfit? Think about it. How many of you think it would be possible to be normal weight and unfit? Put up your hand. Yeah, again, all right. You're playing along with me here. So how can you be fat and fit? Well, if you're fat and exercise, you will be fit. Exercise provides its benefits to people of all sizes, shapes, eye color, those with all that ugly hair on top of their head, and others in the natural way God intended for us to be. Uh, There are these uh, relationships that are very well established in science. We know that obesity and fat distribution are associated with higher rates of morbidity and mortality from chronic disease. We also know that activity and fitness are associated. We know that these two things are also related. So this is a network of associations. But what irritates me to no end and why I call them insulting names like the obesity mafia is that every week in the world's scientific literature I can find a paper in a peer-reviewed journal where some nincompoop has studied... You know, you have that term over here, nincompoop? Okay. Uh, has studied obesity and some health outcome and never mentioned physical activity or fitness. I could never get a paper published on activity or fitness and health if I didn't take obesity, body mass index, fat distribution into account. So I propose no grants awarded, no papers published on obesity and health outcomes unless you measure physical activity and measure it well, hopefully with an accelerometer, or fitness is taken into account. And I'm willing to live by this. Because, as I will show you, uh, we have data not only on height and weight, but on percent body fat, as shown here. Uh, We've published 12 or 15 papers on this topic of uh, fitness and fatness. This is one of the better ones uh, in that, published several years ago now. But we actually, we don't have body mass index or height and weight uh, index to sort people into categories, or in this case, men. Uh, But we have actual measures of percent fat by hydrostatic weighing, some of seven skin folds and the like. So these are, you know, the skinny men, uh, the guys kind of normal fat, and then there's some of us here, uh, 25% or more of their body weight is fat. Well, within each of these categories, I sort them into those who were fit, that is either moderate or high fit, and those who were not fit. And you can readily see for all-cause mortality, or for cardiovascular disease mortality, it's the unfit ones who are much more likely to die. Twice as likely to die. I mean, look at this. You know, here I am with the fit fat guys where the risk of dying during this, whatever it was, 10 or 12-year follow-up period was one-half that of the normal weight or the, the, the lean men who were unfit. <laughs> Gives me great pleasure. Uh, <clears throat> uh, a little later, we published similar findings in women, 
See, unfit ones who die, whether they're normal weight or overweight or obese. Uh, here's a paper that is due out, I think, this month, possibly next month, uh, where we look at fitness, body mass index, uh, or fatness, and cancer mortality. So here in the different, uh, uh, this is normal weight, overweight, and obese. And again, you see it's the unfit ones who are more likely to die. In each of those, die of cancer in each of these BMI categories. If we look at waist circumference, those with high waist circumference above the cut point of uh, 102 centimeters or those below the clinical cut point, again, it's the unfit ones who die. If we look at percent body fat, Again, it's the unfit ones who die, more likely to die of uh, cancer. Uh, Another paper that's in review, we just sent the uh, uh, revised uh, manuscript back in uh, last week, so hopefully it'll get accepted and get get published. Here now, across fifths of cardiorespiratory fitness in adults 60 and older, all-cause mortality. I mean, look at this very steep gradient. Uh, the, un, the least fit 20% were more than twice as likely to die as compared with this 20% and three times more likely to die than this 20%. So we put percent body fat into this analysis, into the statistical model. It's the same. It doesn't change the association with fitness and mortality. And again, here if we look at the fit ones, whether they're normal fat or obese by percent body fat criteria, again, the unfit ones, much more likely to die. You're getting tired of seeing these data, aren't you? Same old story. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, well, you know, maybe it's possible to be fat and fit, and maybe Blair's even telling the truth. Maybe he is fit. It's obvious he's fat, so uh, maybe he is fit. So the question then comes up, uh, well, okay, what percentage of fat people are fit? Here, data in about 11, 12, 13,000 of our women, on the vertical axis is the percent who were moderate or high fit. So they escaped this hazardous low fit category. And if you look at the very lean women, 90% of them. So you see a woman with a BMI of 18.5%. 21, and you're asked to bet on her fitness, bet that she's fit. You come out here to the, this is a very large women, BMI of 37 or greater, 25% of them are fit, and they proved it on the treadmill. And if you come to where obesity begins, BMI of 30, 55 or 60. So if you see a a woman, and the data on our men are the same, you see someone with a BMI of 30, they're classified as obese, and someone says, do you think they're fit or not? You just, well, flip a coin, because you can't tell by looking. Half of them will be slightly more than half, and uh, about half will not. So you can't tell by looking. Obese and overweight, overweight and obese people can be active, fit, and healthy. Conversely, skinny people can be sedentary, slugs, and be unhealthy. So I I want to get the focus on the behaviors, not on a person's size and shape or height or uh, eye color or skin color or anything else. Let's focus on the behaviors of eating a healthful diet and being physically active every day. So we have these two epidemics of inactivity and obesity. Uh, Fitness and and, and activity are strongly associated with, inversely, with mortality. And fitness uh, pretty much wipes out the association of obesity uh, with uh, uh, poor health outcomes, at least in our data, and there are other data that uh, support this. Now, don't get your hopes up. This is the conclusion for this part of the talk. Don't start looking at your watch. I know what time it is. Uh, I don't think we know the cause of the obesity epidemic. Most people don't understand energy balance. NEAT refers to non-exercise activity thermogenesis. This is the energy expenditure of everything other than planned exercise and if you have an an occupation that requires physical activity. So this is just the energy expenditure of the rest of the day. And most of us, This is low because we spend, most of the people in this room spend most of their waking hours 
sitting, unless you're a lecturer and you go around and give a lot of lectures, right? So we, we, we need uh, better data if we're going to, and if we're going to truly understand the obesity epidemic and thereby develop policies and interventions to help. Now, closing in here on the, the last, and I'll go through this fairly quickly, I do want to talk about exercise is medicine. This is the theme of the current president of the American College of Sports Medicine. And in a couple of weeks' time, there'll be a press conference in the national, uh, in, in Washington, what's it called? Uh, I forget, but a, a, a center uh, in, in Washington where all the big important politicians go to hold press conferences. And the American Medical Association and the ACSM are going to announce this initiative of exercise is medicine. Now, what does that mean? I know there are some clinicians in the room and say, what's that guy talking about? Drugs or medicine? Exercise? Well, if we look at these women who have been diagnosed with breast cancer and sort them into physical activity categories, as Dr. Holmes did in this analysis, it's clear that the more active women with breast cancer were more likely to survive over this follow-up period. And very similar findings were for breast cancer recurrence. So exercise should be used to treat as one of the treatments of breast cancer. Uh, here's a report we published earlier this year in a group of men with hypertension and whether their hypertension was controlled, whether it was still stage one or even stage two hypertension across low, moderate, and high fitness. So hypertension should be treated. We have wonderful drugs to treat hypertension. And even if your doctor is controlling your hypertension, as in this group, you can still take another medicine called exercise to improve your chances of surviving over the next several years. But I know some of you are skeptical and you say, well, yeah, those are epidemiology studies. We need randomized trials. Well, here's one from uh, my uh, former colleague, Andrea Dunn. She identified, or actually the, the psychiatry depression clinic at Southwestern Medical School, identified young adults with documented depression. She randomly assigned them to a placebo control where they did a little bit of light stretching or to 80 minutes a week of walking or 180 minutes a week of walking. The outcome here is the percent of uh, patients who had remission of their depression over the uh, whatever period of time, 12 weeks, I think. Note that the 180 minutes a week of walking has a remission of about 40%, which is what the meta-analyses show is the, re the effect of treatment or the remission of depression from drug therapy or uh, uh, cognitive uh, behavioral therapy. So exercise is a medicine for treating depression that's as effective as other medicines. What we now need to find out, and some of these uh, same investigators are, well, suppose we combine exercise and drugs, do we get an even better treatment? Now, here's a wonderful study from Reiner Hambrick, uh, who did this when he was in Leipzig. Uh, men with stable coronary artery disease randomly assigned to 20 minutes a day on the cycle ergometer. They started them out in the hospital, 20, then they gave them the cycle ergometer to take home. The other group, the cardiologist fixed with angioplasty. But over the course of one year, the event-free survival was significantly higher in those who got the exercise treatment as those who got angioplasty. And, of course, it's unfortunate for the poor cardiologist because uh, when this was announced, then it eliminated angioplasty around the world. And, yeah, right. And, of course, I know what the cardiologist said. I heard some of them say it. Well, yeah, but when I put that stent in, I fix them, and they stay fixed. I mean, these guys aren't going to keep exercising. They won't stay fixed. Well, I don't think they've published it yet, but I saw a report last year at the American Heart Association meeting. This event-free survival between these two groups has gotten bigger over the years. So exercise does People stay fixed, apparently. Now, another very large difference between these two treatments is, of course, that angioplasty costs twice as much. Uh, the Diabetes Prevention Program and the FINS at about the same time published similar results. People at high risk for diabetes randomly assigned to a lifestyle intervention, including exercise, or the drug that was thought to be the best drug at the time to prevent the progression to diabetes. And you see that lifestyle intervention was twice as effective in preventing the conversion to diabetes. 
And just very quickly, uh, here the um, uh, physical activity over a four-year period, they got P, and this is up about the level of the consensus public health recommendation. You can get people to do this over the long term. Actually, in my fantasy, I think the uh, adherence to uh, exercise may even be better than the adherence to metformin, which seems to be declining. Again, another difference between the treatments is that per quality adjusted life year, the metformin, which is half as effective, costs twice as much. We've got to think about exercise as a treatment. It certainly prevents chronic disease, but we need to think of it as treatment as well. Well, what should we be doing? Here's another statement from the, uh, uh, the Telegraph, uh, Sunday Telegraph from yesterday attributed to your chief science officer, scientific officer. Now, I've given a lot of interviews in my day, and I know the press often misquotes. I've certainly been misquoted. But if your chief scientific officer actually said this, he or she should be replaced, because it's a completely idiotic statement to say that longevity, that obesity... Of course, I don't know... Surely the chief scientific officer didn't say the seriously fat. And if he or she meant class 3 obesity, BMI of 40 or greater, the people that weigh four, five, six hundred 600 pounds, this might be true. But it's not true for class 1 or class 2 obesity. That the shortened longevity is more for obesity than it is for cigarette smoking. For um, fitness... Um, in, in our data, high-fit uh, men live nine years longer than the low-fit men. Or to put it another way, the low-fit men live nine years less. About the same as smoking. There is no way obesity is even close to that. I'm going to skip that. Uh, <clears throat> the consensus public health recommendation for physical activity that emerged in the mid-90s, and you've uh, done this fact uh, Ken and Chris were uh, um, uh, very much involved in the chief medical officer's report here on uh, five times a week, I think it was called. But uh, around the world, uh, scientists have come to the conclusion that 30 minutes a day on five days a week is a healthful dose of exercise. And remember, it produces moderate fitness uh, in uh, the cohort that I've been following. Now, this is not much. And you can accumulate this in three 10-minute walks. This is not a huge deal. Three 10-minute walks a day to get you that moderate fitness and that enormous health benefit. Now, if you do more, you get your fitness up into the high-fit category, as I've described it, uh, you probably get a little more health benefit. And we're beginning to learn if you do some resistance training, we know it improves function. We've known that for a long time, I think we're beginning to learn that resistance training and muscle strength is also related to some of these same chronic diseases and even mortality. So this is what we should be focusing on, trying to get everyone in your country and mine at least doing this. And I'm not going to forget about the obesity epidemic. It's a bad sign. Everybody should eat a healthful diet. Everyone should try to manage their weight. But it's much more important to eat that healthful diet and be physically active than to worry about what your weight actually is. So here's just another example of engineering energy expenditure out of life. You know, in the U.S., riding, you wouldn't have these things in this country, I'm sure. Uh, riding lawnmowers is going up and up. And, of course, there is a solution to that, a couple of solutions, actually. Uh, Vimsaris uh, has uh, worked out. Well, it's still a riding lawnmower, right? Or here's the Blair lawnmower. I'll bet you, I know you can buy these all over the United States. I'll bet you can buy these here in the U.K., the old type, push, spend some energy. So that's the Blair lawnmower. Or more accurately, <laughs> Mrs. Blair's lawnmower, I admit. But uh, I, I bring this up. This was, uh, this was about the third one of these we've had. And, you know, she really goes after it, and they, they wear out. And uh, so uh, two years ago now, about two years ago, this was my uh, 41st wedding anniversary gift to my wife. And I can tell you, fellas, she was thrilled with it. So let me tell you 
Valentine's Day, Christmas, wedding anniversary, her birthday, get your sweetie one of these, and she will truly appreciate it. And, of course, we are trying to get our little grandson started out the right way uh, with his uh, walking lawnmower. So I'll just close now with my final advice. Physical activity is so important to health and function that, you know, walk the dog every day, whether you have a dog or not. And here's Professor Riddick walking his dog. (laughs) Now, personally, I hate dogs, so I'm going to walk my little grandson, the Penguin Boy. Thank you very much.